Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 229. This week, Carl and I talk about PC building and laptop choices. Is web scraping legal? Throwing away microservices? And what happens if your license plate is null? Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. So this week, Carl and I are talking tech. We uh, we took, I guess it was two weeks off. It's been a little crazy. We've had some vacations. We've had uh, some craziness at work, <laughs> positions, things you know, things moving around, people leaving, people joining. So we're not back. us though. Don't get worried. Yep, yep, yeah. We're still here. You're stuck with us forever. Uh, so Carl, talk about stickers. Stickers. I'm still getting people emailing me for stickers. If you haven't gotten yours yet, send an email to feedback at msdevshow.com uh, with stickers in the subject line, subject line and then your name and address in the body, and I'll get you some. Okay. And then for the comment of the week, we got an email, and it's a pretty long one. He has a couple good, really good points in here. Yep. Uh, we got an email from Dwight Gappa. Uh, two comments on the last episode. Uh, the first is I agree with legisl- legislation that autoplay videos should be stopped in the embedded video webpage article space because it annoys me that play that they play automatically, especially on mobile data. If people pay per gigabyte or if it is their only source of internet and need it for school or something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are some really good points right there. Uh, number two, Jason mentioned the tyranny of the TI graphing calculators and them being required. I had to purchase a graphing calculator for statistics course I was taking because my old TI graphing calculator from high school died. I found and purchased an open source alternative graphing calculator, NumWorks 100 at uh, numworks.com. It didn't support all the same statistics functions as the TI-84, but the firmware is open source and designed to be updated regularly, so that might change in the future. Uh, they include a calculator simulator that runs in the browser, which could be wrapped into a standalone app as well. Uh, thank you again for creating engaging and educating podcast episodes. I learned a lot about what Microsoft is doing and where it is going in the programming and Windows space. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dwight, yeah, for so, those comments. Yep. I was just going to address that second one there. <clears throat> so I don't know if I had mentioned it on that episode or not, but, you know, my my oldest son, we had to buy that calculator for him. And then at the end of the year... I found out that it wasn't even opened. So it was on the required list and then they actually didn't even use them, which was a little frustrating. I think he's going to end up using it this year. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens uh, with that. This open source one is kind of interesting. The biggest issue that I see is if, if you have any kind of issues, like it's great for home use. You know, if anybody needs something for home, like I think this is amazing. Uh, but if you need something for school, <clears throat> The problem is if you if you don't know how to do something and the teacher needs to help you, um, they're going to expect you to have the the standard. I even had a um, I don't remember what it was because I think the TI eighty three was standard when I was there <clears throat> when I was in school, and then we had I think I had like a TI eighty six, which had some extra capabilities. And the issue was the the teacher you know really couldn't help out, and and I was able to deal with it because I was able to figure things out. But I could see that being a challenge. Otherwise, this was a really cool tip. Yeah, and uh, it. 
a lot of times it varies uh, between high school and college what kind of calculators you need. I was actually surprised that he could use the 84 for both. Uh, I remember for the, some of the college courses I needed, I needed to get a different TI calculator for those. Mm-hmm. So that's frustrating when those cost so much and really have had no improvements in 20 plus years. I was just looking. Actually, the NumWorks graphing calculator, it's $99. I didn't even look at how much this thing costs. But I, I'm guessing the soft. I assume the software. Oh, here we go. Online simulator. Ah, cool. So yeah, you can use the entire calculator with actually without actually purchasing it right on the web. Oh, and it has Python. That's pretty cool. So calculations. That's pretty neat. What a neat little what a neat little device. So I had never heard of this thing, but it's uh, it's pretty cool. But I'm just gonna do some quick math here. See if it checks out. Well, you're doing the math. Uh, if you want to get mentioned on the show like Dwight, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com. Comment on our website or Twitter. We especially love those five-star iTunes reviews. Yeah, this is cool. It worked, by the way. <laughs> and there are some statistics features in there. So um, I don't know if those are new or what, but they're like statistics, probability. Um, you can even write Python software on here. Like, how cool is that? So uh, thank you, Dwight. Very cool stuff. Okay, so let's jump into the news. So the first one you have here, Electron 6. Yeah, so uh, uh, Electron 6 is a new version uh, that came out based on Chromium 76 Mm -hmm. and uh, has a a ton of new features. Really, what they're doing is they're pulling in a lot of modernization of JavaScript. So I think they have like full promise support now, which Mm -hmm. is huge uh, there. Um, And I think what's what's interesting, not just that there's a new version of 6, is uh, I I don't know if this is being used, but Slack recently had an update where they've really optimized uh, Electron – to consume less memory and resources. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think the, that's still kind of the, the downside of using electron is knowing how to make those tweaks properly Mm -hmm. in some applications. Uh, apparently Slack is working on getting there. Uh, VS code definitely works well. I think even the Azure storage Explorer really, um, works well without taking up a ton of resources. Those are done very well with electron, but a lot of other ones just seem to, to be sluggish. So um, I'm hoping what some of these changes going forward really start addressing that, making it easier for the community to build these applications that aren't just going to sit there and, and require you to build a new PC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd like to understand what actually makes these electron apps slow and memory hogs. Um, I can sort of guess on the memory. I think that's probably just being sort of lazy with, uh, with, with your memory management there, which is easy to do in JavaScript. Um, I'm not sure how, how they end up, you know, using a lot of uh, CPU, but I've seen that as well. And again, it pr- I guess it probably just comes down to inefficient code in there. Um, but it, it, as far as Electron, I think it's pretty cool that they can just, you know, bring in like the latest Chrome code and they get, they, you get all that stuff for free. Um, they just really have to, I'm sure there's a lot more work to it than that, but they package it up and they're able to, to ship all those new features, which is pretty cool. Okay. Web scraping and crawling are perfectly legal, right? Yeah, I think this one's kind of interesting because at least a, a lot of people I know have personal projects where they've like written applications that would either scrape a specific website or, you know, crawl, uh, you know, you know, starting from a certain point and, you know, find out more information on how things are connected together. And 
you know, apparently there's some questions on like, is this something that's, you know, a positive, negative, or even legal? Mm-hmm. And, you know, just to clarify things, uh, web scraping is the act of going to a website to extract specific information of it. And web crawling is taking all the hyperlinks and following them. A lot of times making the correlation of where they're to and from along the way. Mm-hmm. And, um, Apparently, you know, one of the things that's interesting is LinkedIn has been suing people for scraping the information. You know, LinkedIn is a social net, a professional social network where you can start seeing how people are connected in industries and, and stuff like that. Uh, also ways to find, you know, is somebody have a job or looking for a job and being able to target them. Yeah. The data so, is super valuable. I mean, cause obviously, you know, Microsoft, purchase them for a, a pretty crazy amount of money or a pretty high amount of money. I don't, I don't think it was crazy, but it was a lot of money. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of value in that data for sure. Yeah. And then you get confusing aspects like in, in media, there's a considered a fair use. So that's where you can take somebody else's content and use it. If you're doing, uh, certain acceptable things with it, um, for example, in, in this sphere, uh, there was a website that was, uh, pulling information and pictures and displaying the thumbnails of them. Mm-hmm. And it was considered that was okay because, uh, you know, that was, or that was an acceptable use for it. Mm-hmm. But in a very similar case, um, when, uh, somebody was scraping the Associated Press and just showing excerpts of, or summaries of articles that was considered not okay. So it seems like there's really similar things that have different legal outcomes when it comes to this. Mm -hmm. And I think where this comes interesting is once again, I pulled this back to a lot of us have done projects like these. Um, I actually still have a current project where I'm kind of seeing the migration of humans.txt usage uh, throughout time. So, um, you know, this is something where I'm, I'm not necessarily, you know, trying to extract specific data, but I'm going to a specific spot on every URL or every domain. Mm-hmm. Um, and just seeing how, pe- how people's adoption of it is. And this could fall into some gray area potentially. And, you know, for me, this is just an interesting side project. I'm never going to monetize this. I'm never going to share the data or at least the, the raw data. You know, I might tell somebody the results of it, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of us have these little things that we do that they're not, we're not building a search engine. We're not, um, you know, monetizing it, but some people are. And depending upon how this data is being used, you know, we might need to, uh, look at the legality of these things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, I think most people could probably sort of figure out if like people would be cool with the data that they're, that they're scraping. I will give you a very interesting twist on this entire discussion. Um, I was actually working with a company and I will keep everything like super anonymous so that, uh, so you can't figure out like who the involved parties are. Uh, but basically um, there was some government data that was required to be public, right? And it had to be published online. There was actually like legislation that said like, you must publish this data online. That's the law. Okay. What, <laughs> what some, uh, government agencies would do because they didn't want it scraped. You know, they have that they're in this interesting position. They have to put this free publicly available data out there, 
but they don't want people scraping it. You know, so if they if they wanted people scraping it and they want to make it easy for people, they could put out in JSON or XML or some kind of format like that and be done with it. But no, what they did was um, in some cases they'd put it in a table and then in other cases they would actually plot it in a chart. You know, so it's actual, let, let, let's just, it's not, it was not weather data, but let's just pretend like it was weather data. I mean, imagine if, if weather data had to be uh, publicly accessible by law and you go out there and they just show you a chart. So the company I was working with, they, um, in a perfectly legal way, wanted to, you know, I shouldn't say wanted to, like it was part of their product was to actually scrape this data from all these different systems. And they literally had to, in uh, some cases where a chart was published, they would have to take that image and then they would basically deconstruct it back into the data, uh, which was, which was pretty wild. But you know, that's a case where all every, every action by each person in that whole exchange, they, everybody was doing everything perfectly legal, but it was just kind of hilarious that, you know, the government agencies were trying to make it hard for them. And then they had to jump through all those, those hoops to do it. But back to what I was saying earlier, I think, um, I think it, I think it usually like there's a lot of uh, cases outside the gray area. I mean, if you are just like blatantly like ripping off web pages, like everybody knows, like you, you can't yeah. just like copy and publish that data. And then on the other end of things, you know, you might just be like checking to, to like, you know, figure out a hash or something like did this web page change or something like that. And everybody's like, well, yeah, that's probably fine. But yeah, there's, there's this, well, big I think a great example on that side is for a while, we were trying to automate collecting our, uh, statistics for the downloads of this podcast. Right. And right. just because it was like, you'd have to log in and click in several pages in and mm-hmm. find it and then be like, okay, that's interesting. That's like, really and we were point. trying to, there are numbers. Yeah. <laughs> and there, there are numbers, you know, we've paid for them. We, we've bought the extra service that shows us the analytics. We just want to get to it faster. Mm-hmm. Is that violating, you know, some terms of service? I mean, we don't do that anymore. I think we only did it very briefly, but mm-hmm. you know, these are the kinds of issues that like, that sounds like a no brainer. Like, Hey, these, they're only using the information they've already paid for, but we might be accessing it in a way that's technically illegal. Or it might be in their terms of service that you're not allowed to do that. Who knows? Precisely. <laughs> like, I didn't scour the terms of service to like, make sure that that was cool. So, but anyway, so I think, uh, it's just something that, uh, I think it's sort of thought provoking. If you're trying to scrape something, maybe give it a little bit of thought, make sure that, you're legal. And, um, if it is illegal at all, make sure that there's not somebody who is going to be motivated to, uh, to sue you. I mean, there's things that are technically illegal, but you know, like they're not a big deal. Like, uh, the example I always give is like, if it's a 55 mile per hour speed limit and you go 56, you know, like everybody agrees that that's illegal, but we're also like, <laughs> nobody, nobody's like, okay you know, punish them to the full extent of the law and, and nobody is going to care. A cop isn't going to care. A government agency is not going to care. So, um, but you know, then just realize that you're operating in that gray area. Okay. Um, how to <laughs> on to something easier, how to estimate programming time. <laughs> Once again, we're, we're not going to come to a great s- solution on something that everybody can agree, but I think that the author of this blog post has a small table in here that really gets to the conciseness of mm-hmm. what's wrong with estimating. So just to jump down uh, in the show notes, if you click on the link, there's a table. It's, it says task, a small bug fix. You estimate two minutes. Like this is something you can just go in there and bang it out. 
But what I like here is he has a you forgot column. It's like, you forgot we need to find the function that has the bug in the source code, get pull, check we didn't break any other function, add some tests, run the tests, fix the tests we broke, deploy, update the bug tracker. Actual time needed for that two-minute fix is two hours. Yeah, and that's and that's probably not unreasonable, honestly. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, minor feature, two hours. Uh, I think minor feature might be more than two hours, but... you what you forgot, you need to fix that to do left in the code in the function that you're going to edit. You need to see why there's a don't touch this comment. <laughs> you need to carefully do manual testing, browser testing, check why on edge, it's not working like expected. Oh, and we need to update all the screenshots in the docs. Mm-hmm. So 10 hours, yeah. two hour tasks become 10 hours. Yeah. So on this, on this whole topic of like, I, I know there's, there's this whole, you know, like you cannot estimate how long these things, things take. And I get that. I see this from both sides. You know, there, there's the side of, Hey, this thing we're doing, it's complicated. And, um, every time we need to build something, it's basic. We're basically building something that hasn't been built yet or changing something that's, you know, it's one of a kind. And that's just kind of the way it is. I also see the other side of things where, you know, I'm a, I'm a person with some money and like, I have to make plans, you know, like if you said, I need to build a house and, um, I need some software to run the house and I like, I can't complete the house when that's done. Like I have to tell the person buying the house, like you'll get your house in a year, you know, as a developer, you know, I, I, you know, and again, I'm just kind of looking at this from the other side. You can't be like, well, it might take 10 years. That's just what it takes. You just need to deal with it because it's just development and it's complicated and we can just never do estimates. And I, I guess I sort of have a problem with that too. You know what I mean? Like, I, I I can see both sides on this. You're you're never, you know, I can't estimate how long it takes to write some code. I get it. I totally get that. But then I also know that like the world like has to be able to do things. Like we we want to put astronauts on Mars in like 2035 and the software can't be done in 2040. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think what's, what I like about this one, if you look at the, you forgot column, yeah. these are things that we can plan for and optimize ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Like we, we can go through and leave our code in a better spot, optimizing for the, these other things. Mm-hmm. But once again, going to that process that you were talking about, I had worked for a company at one time when I was a consultant that you did your typical agile, like you plan, like, I think I can get this many story points done. Mm -hmm. Well, if you got ahead, you didn't pull something off the backlog. You sit there and you upskilled. So, which to me was really backwards because there was one time my team had finished two weeks worth of work in three days. Yeah. We spent over a week doing self-training, which was good. But at the same time, like when you fall behind. So if you, if you plan to do two weeks worth of work and it takes you three weeks, Mm -hmm. like, it's not like, oh, you got to do that on your own time now to get, you know, make up for it. It's, yeah. You know, it's a system that leads for you to like always fall behind and never catch up. Mm-hmm. So if we understand why we're, you know, missing our estimates, we can try to, you know, make concrete actions to overcome why those estimates are bad or, you know, prevent that in the, in the first place. Yep. And I felt like this article, like the entire point was to just, the, the, I think the audience for this is somebody who doesn't understand why it doesn't only take two minutes and why it does take two hours instead, or why the two hour feature is going to take 10 hours. I think it did a good, really good job of that. Um, 
I just think the, the, the general concept of like, Hey man, software takes what it takes, you know, like I, I agree with that. And I also have a problem with it. <laughs> and, uh, and that's the, that's the nature of the, of uh, the industry that we're in, I suppose. Um, okay. Three kinds of good technical debt. Yeah. So this, this is a blog post by Squarespace engineering, and they said that there's three kinds of good technical debt. Uh, the first is scaffolding. Um, you know, a lot of times when you implement scaffolding, you know, it's to, you know, pre, uh, put precise known patterns in place. Uh, so when you go to do something, you can just, you know, quickly get in there and get it done. But if you have to make changes to the scaffolding, that can get really expensive and time consuming later on. But its benefits overcome the risks because you get so much accomplished, especially at the beginning of a project. I look at uh, the scaffolding that you get in a smaller way with um, a lot of the, the frameworks out there for UIs. There's very consistent, you know, snippets that are put in to generate consistent HTML, uh, code, you know, code behind to handle those, those actions and callbacks that are in a very precise pattern. Um, they're a little boilerplatey, but it gets inserted there for you automatically with just little spots for you to change what you need. And while that, if you need to change it is really hard to change a year or two down the line, it, it makes sense because you get so much acceleration at the, the front. Um, the next thing on here is uh, hard coding things. Uh, normally, this is a code smell, but sometimes you just have to, you know, put some sort of hard coded value in there. Um, if it's putting it in there is going to take you a few seconds, where it would take hours to figure out how to insert that in there, or days. Uh, in some cases, that can be okay. Um, and lastly, is not fixing all the edge cases. Um, it's easy to go down a rabbit hole to try to think like, what are the, what is the 687th way this thing could break or not succeed? Um, and when you start getting, uh, the returns on fixing these edge cases, you know, isn't meeting your business needs. Um, it works against you. Um, and they actually go into this a little bit more detail, but I think the, the big thing that comes out of these is while these are things that you can look at and say, this is technical debt. The biggest thing is it's intentional. You understand that you're putting this tech debt in and you're getting a return on that technical debt by the acceleration it gives you in the development process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like the, I like the discussion around, uh, around scaffolding. Um, should we go on the next one here? Uh, yeah. what happens when you launch Google Chrome for the first time on a windows 10 machine? And this year, like, I don't, I'm not going to like make any conclusions, but, um, this guy has actually gone through and, uh, he's done this for, from what I can tell, pretty much every browser, including edge, for example. But basically whenever you install Chrome, he watches every single request that happens. So Chrome makes 32 requests the first time it's launched. And it's 7.26 megabytes of uh, data downloaded. And then he just goes through and sort of analyzes what's going on um, and like what extensions uh, get installed. Um, what else is going on here? I know. 
Let's see it here. It pulls down like uh, language translation models. Yeah, where it should uh, search, you know, like basically the stuff that doesn't ship in the in the XE. Uh, but again, you know, he's done this for like Opera. He's done it for the new um, uh, the new Chromium version of Edge. And that one actually was kind of interesting. It was like 130 requests. There's a whole bunch of like Microsoft-y type uh, requests that are going on there. Um, not necessarily bad, but it is interesting that they're making like so many requests in the beginning. And again, I'm not going to make like a conclusion here because I think um, it, it's hard. I mean, there, I don't see anything like super malicious in here. It just sort of is what it is. But I think well, it's just interesting from an academic standpoint. I, I think it's interesting from an engineering standpoint in, in a couple of different ways. Mm-hmm. The first one is how, you know, one of the reasons why you would architect something like this is to really optimize the the acquisition, install, and, you know, like, first use of a browser. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you want a browser, I mean, that's not something, I mean, if you want to use it, you don't want to sit there and wait for a huge download, an extended lengthy install process with tons of click throughs. You just want it to get up and running as fast as possible because you want to browse the web. And normally right now, you don't want to wait n- until later. Uh, so to me, this is interesting, you know, to offload as much of those other things that you could probably get into the installer, um, you know, delay that until later time. The other thing that I think is really interesting is really how much customization is going into your specific install of a browser. Um, you know, it's not just, you know, of, you know, these aren't simple applications like they may have been 20 years ago. Um, all these unique pieces are being kind of hand selected. It's detecting what languages you might use and optimizing for that. It's detecting mm-hmm. which extensions you might use based upon your, uh, your Google account that you might have used elsewhere. I mean, there's a lot of different things that it's pulling in and making this browser unique for you. And I think that's really cool. Yep. Absolutely. I was trying to see, do they have Firefox? I thought he did Firefox as well. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, so it, it, it kind of, you know, it is what it is. Uh, so we, uh, we recommend going to check that out for whatever your browser of choice is. Uh, that way you know what's happening whenever you launch it. Uh, the, at least for the first time. The next one here, NPM install funding. <laughs> so this is a, uh, this is an NPM package that what it does is if it is a dependency, within your NPM package, it will display an ad upon install. (laughs) And um, so as you can imagine, there's some debate in the community as to whether or not this thing should exist. Uh, People do not want ads on their terminals. Some people are saying that, you know, eventually there's going to be an ad from like every NPM package and they're just going to scroll by and you won't see them anyway. (laughs) Um, And some people are saying that we need to just be totally against this. Some people are saying that, uh, having the ad helps fund some of these open source projects and, and bring in, you know, critical money. Um, yeah. So people, I mean, there's just a, a debate around this. I think it's turned off right now, but I think it's an interesting idea. Just adding in, uh, ads into like our last, uh, safe space. Any, any comments on that? Yeah. I don't really have a lot to say about this. I, I get really conflicted on advertising cause it, it's definitely useful in some ways. Uh, but in, 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 there are circumstances where it gets frustrating. And this is one of those ones where I might lean more towards, um, I'm not going to see it anyways. So why are you even bothering to show me? It's a waste of bits. Yeah. Especially since a lot of times when you're automating it, it might be in a console that's hidden. 
So yeah. you might have like a like a GUI that's you know running all these you know things in the background, and you're seeing a, a console ad that's just hitting a processing space and time. Yeah, I don't know. It feels kind of dirty though, too. Like it, this, it does, yeah, because we're not used to it. But at the same time, yeah, if I'm not seeing it and it helps somebody get you know a couple of fractions of a cent that helps you know support their cause, yeah. It, I'm not saying I'm for it. I'm just saying, you know, it's a mushy gray area. Yeah. Right I, I am curious, like how much money you would actually make off of this. I wonder, you know, like how much pain do we have to inflict for how much money? <laughs> but especially uh, knowing a lot of times when you're doing things that are advertising based, it's not as much money as you think. Yeah. Well, and you know, people are just cheap, right? So <clears throat> it's not like they're going to, people are going to give much money. Like I would happily give money, but it's, I don't know. I, I just want to, there's a lot of friction to that. Yeah. It's just the friction. Like if I could just literally say like, Hey, I wish you, I wish you had five more dollars and like, it just happened somehow <laughs> securely and safely and all that, then I would be a hundred percent for that. But of course that's not how it works at all. So. Yeah. Cause I mean, especially with how many payment services there are, mm-hmm. I mean, even just like not having the right one at the right time is enough to be a friction barrier, even if I do buy into several of them. Exactly. Okay. Why our team canceled our move to microservices? Oh no. Uh, I I think this is a a really great conversation to have Mm -hmm. because over the years, there's been a lot of hype around microservices and people seeing that they might have an issue with their current application and just assume that if we just move this to microservices, everything will be better. And, uh, this is an example of a team that thought that looked at, um, you know, changing and actually started down that path and realized that they can't do it. Uh, some of the problems range from they were heavily dependent on a, a third party and abstracting that through a microservice was actually pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that they're app was architected like there was no way for them to do like a transition to microservices because everything was you know pretty entangled there it was hard to make isolation i love this it says uh but that left us with even more coupling message buses everywhere and a potential big bang of immediately going from one service to 10 or more microservices and i've seen that yeah and it's like oh our our application needs to be simple and now it's not (laughs) Yeah. Other things where they just lacked the experience, like they didn't really know how to do that. They had tight timeframes and plus they didn't have a clear roadmap other, you know, other than we need microservices. Mm-hmm. So I think you really need to, you know, evaluate, you know, microservices are good in, in certain applications, but there's a lot of really good monoliths out there too. And sometimes what you need is a re-architecting of your monolith, but not to an extreme microservices. I've seen people like make micro monoliths and, you know, split your app into like three or four pieces that are each monoliths and have them communicate together too. So it's really understanding where you are with your technical debt. Like we talked about earlier, uh, what's your team experiences like, you know, how much budget and time do you have and what, you know, how can you leverage all of that into a future good architecture that's going to scale and hit the requirements that you realistically have? Yeah. For me, it comes out of two sort of major categories. One is like, what is, what is your architecture and um, you know, does it lend itself to arc to, to microservices? Um, some do, some don't. 
And then the other major uh, consideration is like, are we writing a new app or are, are we trying to change something that, that already works? Cause it's always, always a little dangerous to try to go just mess with something that that's already working. And uh, you know, like why do we, why do we need to go back and, and break it? So I, I feel like whenever people are arguing one way or another on pretty much any topic, they always have like their ideal situation in mind. It's like, um, oh, I'm going to write a new application and I'm going to have a user service that things can hit. And then I will have an order service that things can hit. And, uh, and then I'll have a message bus and like, they're just like, yeah, this is definitely the way to do this because then if my order service goes down, I can like create resiliency over that, blah, 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 blah. But you know, they're, they're just thinking of that perfect scenario in that, in that case. Now I will say, I mean, there's a lot of architectures that lend themselves well to this, but I think the people that maybe are on the other side then are talking, you know, they have some kind of piece of code that maybe you just can't split up. Um, and, and it all makes sense to put in one. We actually had, um, I, I don't know if you were in these meetings or not. We were working with this customer where they had, um, they had, uh, we'll just call it a monolith. Uh, it was a monolith database and, um, you know, we had, we had, um, we went in and we were like, Hey, you should take this monolith and split it into three pieces and then put a message bus between the three pieces. And they're like, uh, wouldn't it be faster to just leave it a monolith, you know? Cause like, then there's no message bus and it can communicate with itself instantaneously. And like everybody in the room is like, yeah, I can't really think of any reason why you should split it up. <laughs> and this is like <laughs> microservices people. And I mean, like, you know, and of course there were the, there were the standard arguments that were thrown around. Well, then you can start building re- resiliency in like a piece by piece basis and blah, you know, like that whole story was in there, but I just got such a kick out of that, 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 that a monolith was actually the, like the most efficient, simplest way forward. Um, and maybe someday it'll make sense to, to split it apart, but in their case, it just, it didn't make sense today to split it up. Any other comments on microservices versus monolith? No. Okay. Uh, no license plate backfires on owner. This is an awesome story. Yeah. So there is a developer who ended up getting a license plate that was simply null and mm-hmm. And, I, I've heard multiple conflicting stories on how he got it. Some said he just tried to get that one. Some says he tried to get dev null or, you know, a variation mm-hmm. that included null and ended up getting null instead. But at the end of the day, he has null for a license plate. It's a great vanity plate. I get it. But there happened to be some unintended consequences. Um, apparently he had legitimately gotten a parking ticket and, uh, you know, nothing wrong with that. But all of a sudden, he just got flooded with thousands of dollars of tickets. Mm-hmm. What well, ended up happening if a police officer fails to write in a license plate in the, the proper field, it gets filled in with null. And in the database, that all got associated to him. Uh, so he got, I think, somewhere like uh, $12,000 worth of outstanding tickets. Uh, he contacted the DMV uh, and they said, well, you have to change your license plate. And he's like, I didn't do anything wrong. And then he l- racked up like another $6,000 in <laughs> license plates while this is all going, or, uh, you know, in fines, while this is all going up that he didn't, you know, accrue. <laughs> so, um, you know, this isn't quite the, uh, the Bobby tables example from XKCD. Uh, this is one where it kind of backfired on the person. 
Uh, so that kind of, kind of sucks, but you know, it just shows some of the unintended consequences and edge cases in the systems that we're making. Well, what kind of terrible programming? I mean, they must be doing, um, basically the things where you can do like SQL injection attacks, right? Because null is a special thing. It's not a string. Correct. <laughs> so they must be doing, um, string concatenation for their, well, their queries. I mean, another, you know, thing that I, I was thinking of that maybe is a little bit less malicious is they're just using a really old system. I remember uh, once and this was probably four or five years ago, I was working as a consultant and I was connecting with this identity system that was last updated in 1980. Mm-hmm. And that had some really weird uh, edge cases, especially when it came around to capitalization of things in its database. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure that like, if you pass in the string null, it is that was translation to null or vice versa, you know, in there. I could see that happening on those older databases. Yeah. Well, obvious. I mean, you're obviously right because it happened. <laughs> yeah. But like, I, I still sort of reject this is this is insane. Like how bad? Well, I'm not saying we can't make it better. Yeah. And I can uh, understand but, like, you know, we all did like the string concatenation thing like back in the early days. Like I get that. Um, and I guess that, you know, if that's, if the, if that code still sits around somewhere, like all it's always the weakest link, right. That where, where it happens, Mm -hmm. but it's just crazy that their system like literally has the string null in there. And that's the same. It's, I don't know. That's just crazy to me. So, and then the fact that they won't fix it, like there's gotta be a developer that, that, that is just like, uh, we really need to fix this. This is really terrible. Well, I'm not even thinking of it from a developer point of view, but lost revenue. Mm-hmm. If they're waiving, you know, they've waived his first few batches of several thousand dollars, you know, fixing this bug means that the proper people aren't paying that actually encouraged those fines. But they already don't have their, they don't have their plate number. So how do they, how do you get a ticket if you don't have a plate? Well, I'm, I'm assuming there's a way for you to like, if I got pulled over, like they have my other information for me. They have my name and address. Right, they have- right, right. But for a parking ticket, you can't get into the car. Like you have, n- it's just like red Toyota. <laughs> right. Well, let's just say you get pulled over like, or yeah. Well, that's different there, though, because they have you, like they can put you in jail. Yeah. I mean, I guess they could boot your car or tow it, yeah. but still like, they're never going to, yeah. I mean, what are they going to, I guess they get all oh, the VIN number. I suppose they can look up the VIN number. Couldn't they? VIN number. Yeah. Yeah. That's but cool. still, I mean, there's, there's a potential revenue loss here. And yeah. I, at the very least as like an administrator would want to be like, Hey, we need to make sure we're collecting all the revenue we can on these tickets. Yeah. I wonder, this is really devious, but like if you literally just put fake plates over top of your normal plates and then, and then park somewhere and then get a parking ticket. I mean, you wouldn't get the parking ticket, right? And is that even illegal? Oh, I'm sure it's illegal. How's that? Ill- why? What? What law? <laughs> what law would I, you be breaking? You're not driving a car with with the incorrect plates. You're driving a car with correct plates, but you are parking somewhere. I'm sure there's something about obstructing a view of a license plate. But when you're parked, though, I mean, that's the crazy I'm, thing. I'm, like. So, uh, because, because what, think of it this way. If I'm, if my car is in my driveway and I want to take a photo of my car, so I block the license plate so I can take a photo of it. Am I not, is that now illegal? So I, I wonder if somebody write us in that knows like that can actually cite. don't say like my, my friend's brother's 
sister-in-law is a cop and said this like <laughs> that doesn't count somebody knows like the law that they actually use to get people i'm kind of interested in in how that works that seems like a that seems like a, a way to get out of parking tickets it's kind of like the people that put like uh, mannequins in their um in their passenger seat you know for the tolls so the so just bringing it back to the state of wisconsin sure uh wisconsin dot.gov has uh a, a site on license plates and, and this has more links in here, but it says both plates must be attached to the vehicle on front and year and rear must be maintained in legible condition and displayed so that they can be seen and read license plate brackets that cover any part of a readable message on a license plate are illegal. But again, like if you're parked, it's not a, it, it's, it just says that's all conditions. It doesn't say moving or anything. That's but like, what if it's not even a registered car? Like in what defines a car? Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) If it's not registered, it can't be parked on a street. Well, on a street, but I mean, I guess we're talking about parking tickets in general, right? Parking tickets would happen on a street. If you're on a private property, it doesn't have to be registered and you can't get a ticket for that. Um, well, I know they can tow it. Like, um, I think it was planet money. Just did a podcast on that. You can, you can tow somebody else, but this is it's your vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. There, I put the link in there. So even if it's parked, huh? Everybody, chime in on this. Send us some feedback. (laughs) Oh God, (laughs) that'll actually be pretty amusing. Go ahead, let us have it. (laughs) We'll 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 discuss that on the next episode. That should be that should be amusing. Okay, so um, after the news here, what I wanted to talk about, we have a couple different topics, but the first one here was PC building. So I have I have an old 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 computer that I built, an old desktop machine which is still surprisingly powerful. Like it, it's still, it's still ticking. (laughs) Um, I'll have to dig up the blog post of when I actually built this thing, but I think it was like 2012, something like that. Um, But anyway, I have, it's actually impressive specs. This was like, for anybody who knows, memory got really inexpensive and then it got very expensive and now it's starting to come down again. But like I put 32 gigs in this thing and I want to say it was a hundred dollars. That was pretty impressive. Yeah. I think it was a hundred dollars when he did it. Okay. So I built the computer in March of 2013. So it's six years old and, um, I built it for, I built it for $900 quad core 3.5. ASRock Extreme. Um, I even use a thermal camera to like check everything over. Uh, power supply. S- I even had an SSD. Um, anyway, so that was that, that's what I'm currently rocking. And basically, um, my son wants a gaming PC, and uh, his laptop. Uh, well, I I don't want to talk about all that, but anyway, his laptop is not his anymore. So he wants a he wants a, a gaming desktop. And I actually put in a new graphics card in this desktop uh, just a couple months ago because I want to be able to do some VR stuff. So it has a 1070 Ti, which is a res- very respectable video card. Um, and it actually plays everything fine. So that's a plenty fast CPU, plenty fast SSD. It's got an amazing GPU and it's got tons of RAM. So it's a perfect gaming machine for him. So I was going to use this as an excuse to to build a new machine to, to run a whole bunch of different things. So... Um, what got me really excited about this was um, a friend, a mutual friend of ours kept um, mentioning AMD processors. And I'm like, I don't want to deal with that crap. Like um, AMD Athlons were, were awesome back in the day. They, they were the ones that 2001, uh, 2001, <laughs> 2002. Wow. Yeah. That, that makes time sense. Frame. 
Yeah, that's crazy. That's how, that's how, I mean, that was the last time AMD <laughs> had like a really good solid lead on Intel. Yeah. And ever since yeah. then, it's been hard to justify, you know, price performance. Exactly. Like it, they, AMD basically awoke a sleeping giant and Intel was like, oh, consumers want good processors. Okay, fine. And then they just started kicking AMD's butt for a long time, especially from like a thermal perspective and thermal throttling. Um, they just were they after the Athlon processor, then AMD just or Intel was just kicking AMD's butt forever. So now, you know, fast forward to let's say a couple months ago, and you know, I started started talking about maybe building a new PC, and he's like, Oh, you should look at AMD. Um, and I started reading, and it's just like, Oh, in these particular use cases, they're a little better than Intel, and it's like why would I want to deal with like the instability of a crappy Intel or a, a crappy AMD processor? I'd rather just spend a little bit more and get a solid Intel processor. Um, and then uh, somebody else I know had mentioned, um, he was talking about how um, things were going to change in the third gen Ryzen processors. And I didn't really think about it too much. And then I started, uh, I actually re- started reading about this a few weeks ago. And I realized that the the Gen two Ryzen processors, which were you know available um, up until you know, well they're still available, but up until the Gen three came out a few months ago, um, they were very good at cramming a whole bunch of cores in there, but the single threaded performance was just was horrific uh, compared to the Intel processors. And the reality is most things aren't multi threaded, so single core performance is king. So it still made sense that Intel was totally on top. Well. Fast forward to the Gen 3, they now have a 7 nanometer uh, process, and uh, they've basically fixed the single-threaded performance issue. So now if you look at what you can get from AMD, there's actually a deal right now. Um, let me see if I can pull up the, the deal. It was a, um, I think it was a quad-core. Let me see if I can locate it really quick. Uh, no, I, I don't see it. I think it was a quad core AMD processor for 180 bucks. And it was, it was a phenomenal deal. But anyway, what I'm looking at is the 3900 X. It is actually a 12 core AMD processor. And each core is, what is the speed? Three point, I think it's 3.9, 3.8, uh, 3.8. Each one is 3.8, but turbo is up to a uh, 4.6 so that it can get that fast, uh, single core performance. And then they have a similar technology like hyper threading. So basically you can do 24 threads simultaneously. And obviously it's not as good as 24 cores, but you know, that's a discussion that's not, not for right now, but in any case you could be theoretically running 24 applications simultaneously and each one would get their own virtual core on this processor. And it's $500. Um, to put that in perspective, Intel, <laughs> I can, I can already tell Intel's a little threatened. Um, they've released some benchmarks on their, their highest N and I nine processor. And they're like, Oh, actually in our own internal benchmarks, which like alarm bells should already be going off. They're like in internal benchmarks. Um, the I nine is 2% faster and they give some different numbers than the, than the AMD, uh, than the AMD processor. But what they don't tell you is that is a $2,000 processor and it's only eight cores. So you can, so literally for a quarter of the price, you can get 50% more cores in it for an AMD processor. And AMD later this year will have the 3950X, which is a 16 core, 32 thread processor. And I think the price on that is $750. So what's the catch? Well, there really is no catch. They are 
phenomenal processors that are there to just once again, destroying Intel. Um, so guess what the issue is then you can't buy them. I was going to say, uh, probably everybody's running out to buy them. Yeah. They cannot make these things fast enough. So I have a new egg alert set up. I've had it set up for a couple of weeks now. Um, a few days ago, I got an email saying, Hey, it's in stock. Better hurry up and go get it. I saw the email an hour and a half later. I went to the site out of stock. So they're pretty much impossible to get if you want to spend, um, you know, non marked up retail, you know, the $499 uh, price point. So I'm just waiting. Um, I'm just waiting is, is kind of the short version there. I want to get, uh, yeah, cause on the that link processor. that you sent me, I think it's, uh, almost $680. Really? It was 520 earlier. Is that what it says that, right now? That's what it oh says. My God. Right now. Yeah. $680. <laughs> See, if you look at the top rate sold and shipped by deals a day, that's just like Amazon where they have like the third party seller. So, I mean, these, these people are paying this. I know people are overpaying. They're paying five, six or like six, seven, eight hundred dollars to get this processor because it's that good. It's just, it's really amazing. So I'm waiting for that. Um, I did, you had recommended looking at Nick Craver's blog. Um, cause he always has a desktop build that they use for stack overflow. Um, his stuff is a little out of date. Um, he does recommend a I nine processor eight core. And it's kind of interesting because that is a much, much, much slower processor than what I'm looking at. And it's $530. That is also a good choice though. I wouldn't say it's a bad choice. Um, but if you just make the swaps for the processor and the corresponding motherboard yep. to make up for it, yeah, pretty much everything else is something that you could exactly. get inspiration from or steal wholeheartedly. Exactly. So I'm either going to go with a two or sorry, a 2060 or 2070 graphics card and they are expensive. I mean, GPUs are just expensive these days. Um, whenever you get into that, that, um, uh, that level, um, I did do a little bit of research. So the, the 2060 from NVIDIA is, um, it's faster than a, I think it's a little bit faster than a 1070, maybe even faster than a 1070 TI that I currently have. And it's a current gen uh, graphics card and it's better in a few ways. So I'll probably go 2060. So it's like basically the newest generation of graphics card, but the crappiest model they have, but it's still better than, than the mid range previous generation. Um, and I think that'll end up costing about 350 bucks, maybe $380 we'll, we'll end up seeing. Um, and then I want to go with uh, 64 gigs of Ram, which is pricey. It's pricey. Um, the Nick Craver build here is, um, is also pricey. Um, he has, well, he has a list at $432 Ram prices. I believe actually, if you look at that exact link that he yeah. gives though, it's down to 275. Yeah. I was going to say, I think Ram prices have dropped. Like, I think it's reasonable to go um, 64 now. Um, I think 128 would be like, would be the over, like the super over, I think 64 is slight overkill. <laughs> 128 is total overkill. Um, but you know, to each his own, I suppose. Um, and then his case choice here, to me, cases are always really difficult. Like I'm just really going off reviews. I don't really know what makes a good case. Um, it's a box. Like <laughs> it is what it is. I do notice that like pretty much every case now or, or like 80% of cases have a, have a clear side on them. And then every component has to have like the, that the LEDs in them. Um, but I don't know, like, where am I going to put that? I think it'd be cool to have it like on behind me for like Skype calls, but how does that work? Then I'd have to buy like all these long cables, which maybe I will, who we'll see. We'll to, see. To be honest, be cool. I think there's 
one practical use for clear uh, yeah. on the side of one. And that's so you can see when you need to go in there for dusting. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's true. Cause I actually have uh you can see right here. I just had to do some dusting mm. of myself. So I've got my can, my canned air right here that uh, okay. just got some use. And then, you know, one of the other big uh, advantages to upgrading here is that uh, the new SSDs are the M.2 technology, which is like three, th- like these hard drives are like 3000 megabytes fast. per second. Yeah. They're insanely fast. And, um, the motherboard that I'm looking at actually has two slots. So I can actually, and I thought that was really interesting because yeah. a lot of people are putting multiples on there. So, I mean, they're seeing the demand. I could literally go like four terabytes of like onboard storage. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do that. Um, I think we're getting closer and closer to SSDs ruling the day, even for like bulk storage, but um, not yet. So, I mean, I'll probably go with like one, a one terabyte M.2 drive. Um, that's, Which, I think to that's be honest, I mean. that's enough for most applications, especially for gaming. Yeah. I mean, you want to get the game on there. Yeah. And um, I mean, if this is strictly a gaming PC, you're not going to have a ton of save data. Yeah. Well, games, are, and, I mean, games are big, though. They are huge. I mean, so. they are big. But like, yeah. if you're only going to put a couple on. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're probably not going to be rotating through like six to ten different ginormous games. Yeah. Um, And if you're not going to be using this for anything else, I mean, cloud storage will easily cover every other need that you have. Yep. Because I do have, by the way, three years of Game Pass, <laughs> and that covers PC as well. And I saw there's even like Forza on there and a whole bunch of stuff like that. So I'm like, ooh, and I have 4K monitors. So I'm like, things could get interesting. Like I might actually get into some of this uh, this gaming. Although the reality is, I'm just going to play Age of Empires too. Although um, there are the definitive editions of Age of Empires coming out, which have better graphics. Although I, it's not still not going to require any kind of crazy graphics. But I'm excited for that. Yeah. Now I know, like one of the hardest things that I've always had when trying to piece together my own PC. Yep. And I know you were talking about it. Uh, a joint friend of ours made a realization: if you put all of your pieces into PCPartPicker.com, yes. it'll calculate how much wattage all of the pieces will use. Mm-hmm. Because I remember in the past, I think the first PC that I bought, I didn't understand like why you don't want crazy wattage. Mm-hmm. And I think I got like a thousand watt like power <laughs> supply like it was just it was crazy overkill yeah i like i didn't need need anything close but like i bought it i'm like ah, i can't have too much right better than too little yeah but you I think really you really want to you really want to get it reasonably i mean you're going to need some overhead on top of like what it says mm-hmm. but with the optimization, especially like I'm sure on those uh ryzen being seven nanometer one of the things you get is better uh efficiencies and power Mm -hmm. uh, usage. So it's not going to need as much power. A lot of the other pieces of your computer are, have been optimized for power in the last few years. So like getting a crazy uh, power supply is just going to wait, waste electricity in the form of heat. Yeah. So we, you know, we had this, some discussion about this. There's a, there's a couple of points I'll bring up. So one is that I think the, I always get the impression that everybody thinks they need a huge, huge, huge power supply. So it's like, oh, I got a graphics card in there. That thing's going to pull 300 watts. Um, maybe, but you know, honestly, like the newer, the newer graphics cards are pretty efficient. Now, if you're going to go like two, three, four graphics cards, then heck yeah, like you're going to be pulling a crap ton of power. Also, I want your monitor set up if you need that many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, exactly. 
So, um, I did a little bit of research on this to sort of understand. So yeah, P- PC part picker will give you kind of a range of, of what you could need. So it's really nice because you can sort of figure out your theoretical maximum of what your actual parts will pull with the build that I put together. It said 400 Watts, which still sounds high to me. Um, but I also need to understand like that's on the output side of the efficiency, right? Like if you're 80% efficient, then I think you, you're going to be pulling more on the other side. But anyway, let's just take that out of the conversation. Um, if you look at the, um, efficiency curves, basically, um, it's fairly universal that the power supplies are most efficient at 50%. So you really want to optimize for that. Either you're going to have a machine that you only turn on when you're gaming and then, then I, 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 then, then it might actually pay for you to go basically with the double the size of the max power usage. That way you're at the, at the peak of the efficiency curve. Or if you're going to be sitting idle most of the time, then you really need to think about right sizing that thing. And, and, you know, what is the smallest power supply you can get away with? It has a little extra headroom. You don't always want to be at the ragged edge either. Um, but if I'm using 400 watts, maybe I want to get a 500 or 550 watt power supply. That way, when it's sitting there at idle using 50 watts, I'm closer to that uh, the center of that curve. So that's something to keep in mind too. Um, but somebody also pointed out that you know we might only be talking about a five percent, ten percent difference. And if I'm pulling 45 watts um, at idle, that's 45 bucks a year, roughly. Um, it obviously depends on what your power cost is. But 45 bucks for the year, if you bring that up or down 10 percent, it's not as not a big difference. So maybe just don't stress about it. But in any case. Um, the, my advice, my current advice would be figure out what PC part picker says you're going to need, go above that a little bit. And that's probably what I would do unless you're just, unless you're building an insane gaming PC, then I would, then it's going to be a little bit different than that. So yeah, that was, that was a really good point, Carl. Um, I also, one thing that I, that I did sort of skip whenever I was talking about the processor was how out of, out of date my processor is from 2013. So I looked it up. It's an Ivy bridge processor. It's a 22 nanometer process which is seems huge in like today's standards, but there was Ivy bridge, then Haswell, then Broadwell, then Sky Lake, then KB Lake, then coffee Lake, then cannon Lake, and now ice Lake. And I think, I don't know if I think ice Lake might be the 10th gen. I can't remember or the next gen is 10th gen. In any case, (laughs) um, each of those, you know, at the same clock speed actually had a pretty significant increase in speed. And I guess the 10th gen Intel processors are going to have that fix in there for, um, uh, what was that bug called? Anyway, the bug that's like killing everybody. The speculative escalation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I think AMD already has a mitigation for that in their, uh, Mm -hmm. their third gen Ryzen processor. So anyway, I'm pretty excited now about the, the AMD processor and about building this thing. Um, I just have to settle on some of the details. Like the RAM is one of those things where it's like there's different speed RAM and and my understanding with like current architectures and maybe it's different with AMD, but I know with Intel, like the speed of the RAM didn't really matter. Um, so I have to do some research because it's like, oh, why is this RAM double the cost of this other RAM? Um, oh, it's not as good. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So I'm not going to buy the one that costs double. So I got to, you know, I have to do a bunch of research uh, like that, of course. Um... Did you have any other questions on it, Carl? Now, it, I know you've done a ton of research because mm-hmm. you're in the market, but I just realized last night that I am now in the market for a new PC. So <laughs> I'm definitely going to be begging, borrowing, and stealing a lot of the notes that didn't get make it to this. But I think this is a long way towards uh, something that makes sense. <clears throat> 
I, I think, like you said, the biggest problem with this kind of build is you want that awesome new uh, CPU, and so does everybody else. So yeah. it's being patient enough to wait for it to become available. Yeah, because I don't want to overpay for it. Like I'm patient enough to to wait to pay. I'm, I'm willing to pay retail. So, and, and I think I I'd be willing to wait till like Christmas, anyways, because mm-hmm. funds seem to free up around that time, anyways. So, yep. And funds also seem to disappear at that time. So hopefully give it a few months. It'll, the demand will go down and they'll become reasonably priced again. Yeah. So my, my price is pretty close to, to Nick's, uh, standard here. Um, some things on mine are a little higher. Some things are a little bit lower. Um, I actually think I'm beating him by quite a bit. I think I'm around, I must be around $2,000. I think I'm actually under that. I think I was at like 1600 with a lower graphics card um, and then with less storage because he has a, his, his storage option there is really expensive. Uh, he has a $500 hard drive in there, whereas the one terabyte is now $180 or sorry, $170 for a one terabyte uh, M.2 drive. That's just incredible. And those keep yeah, dropping. So you, like, yeah, you can save $300 on that alone. Yeah, I would. I would. I would re- actually recommend probably undersizing your SSD. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but the way that prices are dropping, I mean, I think if you spent a lot of money on a two terabyte and then in a, you know, in a few months, that thing is like a quarter of the cost. I think you'd feel really bad and th- and that yeah. could happen. That's how fast these prices are dropping. Yeah. So it- the reason why I'm upgrading a PC is I just had one completely die on me and I built that one in 2009 and in that time frame, the only thing that I ever did is I replaced the hard drive on it twice. Yeah. And that was enough each time to, you know, just extend its life by several more years. It's amazing yep. how long some of these uh, home-built PCs will last if you uh, just take care of them. Exactly. Yeah. So right now, this is kind of crazy. The one terabyte M.2 drive is 170. The two terabyte is 500. Like to me, it's so obvious you should go with one terabyte. Um, 500 is $90, which actually is not a bad idea either. Yeah. 500 gigabytes, um, uh, for 90 you get bucks. a lot done in that, even on a gaming PC. Yeah. And just, just call it a day. Like that's pretty dang good. Or, um, yeah, I guess you wouldn't want to buy two of those. I'd probably just, I'd probably go terabyte just to, just to have enough uh, breathing room there. Raygun provides full stack error, crash and performance monitoring for tech teams. Whether you're a software engineer looking to diagnose and resolve issues with greater speed and accuracy, or you're just concerned you're losing customers to poor quality online experiences, Raygun can provide you with the answers. Get full stack error and performance monitoring in one place. The next time you're struggling to replicate errors and performance issues in your code base, think Raygun. Head over to raygun.com. Get up and running within minutes. Dramatically improve the online experience of your users. Uh, I'm actually due for a, you know, sort of shifting gears here. I'm due for a refresh on a, on a work laptop. And I'm trying to figure out... I'm just trying to figure out my whole tech situation. Like I'm using a Mac, a MacBook pro, but I haven't been traveling much recently. So I'm using it like as a desktop machine, driving my two 4k monitors. And I do need a windows machine for, for work. Not that they like require it or anything, but like running visual studio in a virtual machine or something is just not a great experience. And I never keep the VM up to date. Well, Plus, especially I, if you're doing Docker development, yeah, um, containers, yeah. that's just, it's really hard yeah. So I do VM. want, I do want a windows machine. And I, you know, I, I actually saw, I was uh, actually sitting at the, at a trampoline park. My kids were, were jumping around 
And uh, I saw the announcement about the Samsung Galaxy Book S. And this thing just really started, it, this it really got me to thinking. Um, this thing, it's basically, it has the, the, um, uh, the ARM processor. And uh, now the first ARM processor laptops that came out were a little sluggish. Um, I know you and I have tried them and we're actually pretty impressed by them. Um, I think, you know, for like everyday usage, there's a lot of applications that are just sluggish. I assume like running Visual Studio on it's probably a little sluggish, for example, because it's doing the um, translation of the 64-bit stuff into into ARM or the uh, x64 into ARM. Uh, but anyway, this thing has 23 hours of battery life because it's basically got, you know, a high-end phone uh, CPU in it. 23 hours of battery life. So that's powering the display powering the processor, all of that stuff. Plus, since it is a mobile chip, since it's an ARM chip, it has the built-in LTE, which is just crazy. And this isn't a 2.1 pound package. So it got me thinking, It's because I was sitting there on my phone, and I forgot my laptop. Plus my laptop, I mean, my laptop, I shouldn't complain about it. It's only four pounds, but it's still a 15-inch, four-pound laptop still, to me, feels large. And I know a lot of people have like these, they get these computers issued by work that are like Dell machines that are like two inches thick. I get it. <laughs> that are like seven pounds. Yeah, I don't, and- you know, it's just like, uh, you know, first world problems for sure. But, but holy cow, like if you've ever touched one of these like two pound uh, laptops that are like tiny, um, that is game changer. If you can sit there and use one node and use your browser. And then I would actually be tempted to, um, to pay the monthly selfie to actually just have this thing just magically work wherever I go. So I think that would be interesting. It starts at a thousand. It's actually a lot of money for that machine because it is only a 1080p screen. To me, that's one of the biggest downsides on it. Um, but I mean, it's sort of purpose built. But then when I started thinking about it, it's like, you know, then you you still run in this wall because it's like, oh, well, I can do X, Y, and I can do an X and Y, but I can't do Z on it or Z kind of sucks if I want to run Visual Studio. So then I started looking at like the Surface Laptop 2. I don't know anything about Surface Laptop 3, like when when that's going to come out or anything, but presumably based on the previous schedule, that's going to come out sometime in the next few months. Um, that could actually be a really interesting machine. There's also the Dell XPS 15, which I think is a phenomenal machine. Um, and I started looking at using that as a travel machine, but that's a three pound machine. Um, and it's like, is that really much less than a four pound machine? So I don't know. I I actually don't really have any advice here yet. I'm trying to figure out what do I want for what do I want for travel and what do I want to use at home and I'm still trying to figure and that out. And they have to be the same machine. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, well, not necessarily, but Well, and that that's been my that's been my solution in the past is like, hey, I'm going to get like I'm going to spend a crap load of money on a MacBook Pro and I mean like th- th- I I was just looking all these Windows machines seem so cheap, even like with really amazing specs, like beating the Mac Pro. Uh, they're like half the price, uh, which is really impressive, um, by the way. But um, so that, that's been my strategy in the past. And then and then I never have to like I just keep one machine up to date. But what's always killed me is I want a domain join machine that's just like it has like my work stuff on it. And I would like to have something that's like super ultra portable. So I don't know. I don't know if that's just going to mean I'll probably keep, you know, I'm going to keep my existing Mac laptop for sure. So it's like, I don't know if I personally want to buy like something that's like ultra portable for, for those situations, but then work, you know, like I said, I'm like, I'm like right at the time when they'll buy me a new machine and I don't think they're going to buy me a, you know, like top of the line MacBook pro or anything like that. So I'm just like in this weird situation where 
I don't I don't want to ask work for a cheap portable machine because that feels ironically that feels wasteful. <laughs> you know, because they're willing to spend, you know, two thousand, twenty five hundred dollars and I say like, no, 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 I want this machine for nine ninety nine. That just for, for you know, that just feels wasteful to me. So I haven't I haven't figured out what I want yet. But uh, if anybody, so if anybody has something that they're using for work and hits that, you know, daily workhorse and flight friendly, travel friendly one, yeah. let us know. Yeah, but I, you know, I don't like I, w- I want something that runs Visual Studio good too. So that's what's challenging. So I'm, I'm, my best guess at this current point is there's that XPS 15, and they have the new version that flips around, and I think that'd be really good for like movies on the plane, and it would be a workhorse for. Um, uh, for, um, visual studio and things like that. And I don't know, but it weighs three pounds. Like that feels kind of heavy for, for that as well. I don't know. So that's where I'm at. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I got to figure all this out. One other thought I had was whenever I was chatting with you yesterday was to, um, instead of trying to get something like the XPS 15, go with a, a two pound machine like the the Samsung Galaxy Book S, and I do have a home VPN set up, and I can use remote desktop. So if I go somewhere for a hack, and I need to use Visual Studio, I could just RDP into my home machine. Um, that that works fine if I'm in like Washington. If I go to Asia, um, then maybe not so much. You'd <laughs> probably kill me. But um, I don't know if anybody has any ideas or anything that they think I should look at. Let me know. Okay. Anything else you wanted to talk about, Carl? I I think we covered an episode's worth of content so far. Okay. I think we just need to wrap it up with the dev tip of the week. Okay, go ahead. So I know a lot of people get really picky on the themes in their IDEs. And if you're like me, I'm you're kind of unhappy with the choices in Visual Studio. I love Visual Studio for its functionality, but it's dark theme is mediocre at best. It's got a light theme and a blue theme and they're all just meh. Um, there is a color theme editor extension. Um, but the, like the best part of that, and this is a pretty low best. You have to hand edit elements one at a time from an unorganized list of 3000 vaguely named color tokens. <laughs> so, right. That's really hard to work with. Yes. Uh, what happened is this year, the interns, interns in the dev div department created a new color theme designer extension. And what this does is there's kind of two modes to it. There's I'm my, my words here in easy mode, you pick a few colors as a primary and accent and secondary colors, and it'll just fill in all of those for you. So within just a few minutes, you can kind of just tweak the look and feel of visual studio. There's also an ad- you know, advanced mode where you can really dig in and define what you're looking for very granularly. Um, you can filter and sort by all the various different um, named attributes that you could possibly change. And uh, once you're done, you actually get an installable theme that you can apply and share out with other people. Okay. Well, that is super cool. Can make it look like what you want, and then I, yeah, I like that you can uh, you can get other people's themes because other people are way more creative than I am. Yep. Okay, so where can people find you, Carl? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer, and you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com/slash ytechie. Well, it's great talking to you, Carl, and uh, we'll see you later. Awesome. <laughs>